You are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit Win, Women in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global marketing lead at Win by night and product manager and university level faculty by day. I heard Jane Garrity speak on a YouTube video about six to eight months ago and remember thinking her conviction and point of view felt so authentic, no matter how composed she remained. A cold email and a few months of patience later, I'm excited to welcome Jane, who is the CEO of global brand and design consultancy Lander & Fitch, a leader in the two disciplines, which is now a singular entity. Through her last 10 years at the company, Jane's experience working with large and small clients alike shapes her unique point of view on innovation, which she shares with us today. Today's conversation felt especially meaningful as we talked about how her CEO-level role gives her this incredible opportunity to represent Lander and Fitch across multiple continents and countries, and that that comes with its own challenges and with different gender roles assigned to women in different countries. What makes Jane so special is that she is hyper aware of the path and the multifaceted nature of being a global CEO and then having to deal with gender issues that don't go away once you get there. Something else that was super unique to this episode is that we discuss age, which I'm personally understanding and learning about as such a huge factor of discrimination. I hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to check out some of Jane's other speaking opportunities as I feel like we could learn unlimited amounts of information from her and her rich experience in the innovation, brand, and design industries. Hi, Jane. Welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Hello. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. The pleasure really is all mine. I have so many questions for you today in store, but I think some people listening to this podcast may say that they know Lander, the brand consultancies, and then some probably will say that they know Fitch, the design consultancy. Today, you are global CEO of Lander and Fitch as the brands were combined into one entity about two years ago. So before we dive into your background, I'd love to hear about how did that come about and what you think is behind this general market trend of merger and acquisitions between consultancies and design studios. Very happy uh, to talk about the coming together of Landor and Fitch. Um, And as you say, it it is part of an ongoing trend, I suppose, in the business. It was a big part of Mark Reed, our global CEO at WPP. It was a big part of his strategy to bring together capabilities within the WPP group uh, to be able to offer broader services to clients more simply. So shortly after he took on the role, we talked a lot about what we could really do to unlock more potential from the brand and design companies within the group and felt that Landor, with its you know very strong heritage of connecting business to brand strategy and expressing that through strategic design, coming together with Fitch, more famous for really connecting consumers to experiences and ultimately brand, bringing these two companies together gave us a broader better, simpler proposition for clients 
which is all about brand transformation in the broadest sense. So that was the thinking behind it. And it's been it's been wonderful, actually. I think it's been very exciting to, you know, to learn more about the possibilities of, of brand and design and, and help our clients on bigger, broader problems. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting about your company specifically is so many agencies or uh, they merge with these design companies, but they kind of like suck them up instead of highlighting them as their own entities. So what I really have loved about this specifically is that it does still remain Landor and Fitch versus just Landor and Associates or something. Yeah. And I do think, I mean, Landor has a long heritage of of helping clients navigate through mergers and acquisitions. We do a lot of work in that space. We do a lot of work creating new companies from spins. And I do think it's one of those moments, isn't it, where, you know, we've all heard cobbler's shoes, you know, you have to drink your own Kool-Aid. And I do think that we we embraced the opportunity with the kind of same approach and principles and discipline that we would do if we were advising a client on a merger, because I think we were all excited about the possibility as long as it created a kind of highest common denominator solution, if you like. So, you know, the new proposition needed to build on the shoulders and capabilities of the two companies, but create something bigger and brighter and better. So, so as to avoid, you know, what you've just suggested, we didn't want one to squash the other. Mm -hmm. We didn't want to bring the two companies together only to turn into one of the original companies. We were really excited about creating something new, you know, that would be better, but built on the the kind of shoulders of the past, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. I have to take it back to 2008. And the reason I do this is I do feel like so much of 2020 and even 2021 feels like what was happening in 2008 with the world crashing around us. And going back to you and and where you were in that point in time, uh, if my research and, and online stalking of you tells me correctly, you were uh, at ITV and then you started with Naked Communications. And I think there's a lot of interesting questions around that. One, being at a company that is driven around TV at a time where everything is going digital. So I'd love for you to take me back to 2008 and how you navigated that challenging time. My word, you're asking a lot of my (laughs) memory here. No pressure. Way back when, Lord, I would have been in my 30s. It's all coming back to me. (laughs) (laughs) From your online stalking, you would have seen that I I grew up in advertising, um, advertising in London, and then I moved to New York. Uh, in 2000 and worked, did the Madison Avenue thing. It was all terribly exciting. I also got married, had my first kid, then had my second kid. The motivation for joining ITV after many years in the advertising industry was that the arrival of my wonderful children brought us back to the UK and did not see the same level of innovation in the UK advertising market at that time, which is really what made me think more broadly 
about trying some new stuff. So using the skills I'd learned in advertising, but applying them more broadly. You know, it, it wasn't quite the land of opportunity that I'd initially hoped, but I did really find the whole experience of being at a you know, major UK broadcaster, very reliant on its television advertising revenues. You know, I learned a lot about how, you know, a company needs to evolve and embrace the new. You know, at Mm -hmm. that time, I mean, there was so much risk associated, I suppose, with putting effort around different channels, digital channels, that weren't delivering the same proportion of revenue. You know, we come across that a lot, don't we, as as, as we work with businesses. You know, it's kind of you can't afford not to, you can't afford to. Where are you going to put your effort? You don't want to be the next Kodak. How are you going to make sure that you are applying the right level of effort to the new without neglecting the core? So it was it was a really interesting experience. Yeah, and I also think you brought up so many interesting points there with Kodak specifically. I think for the last several years of their, you know, existence, their strategy was survival, which I think as we know cannot be the strategy. No. And I I I think ITV has survived brilliantly. Of course it has and it was always going to, but it is you know, you're right to highlight these catalytic moments where, as you say, you have to overcome the temptation to close down the opportunity and focus on survival. You have to try and fight against that and continue to work on your Thrive strategies and those initiatives and programs that ultimately will deliver growth in in the medium to long term. Yeah. And Jane, I do have to ask me being myself, a mid twenties professional in New York city before this pandemic, it was absolutely crazy living in this city, but you really, you really did it big. You were like you said on Madison Avenue. So your twenties and thirties must have been the most exciting of times. So how has that changed between then and now? And what kind of perspective have you learned from it? You know, it was one of the most exciting times, I think, from a kind of life experience perspective. I try and encourage everybody to experience life in a different culture. And I do think there are assumptions that Brits make about <laughs> about going to New York. You know, well, we all watch Friends. We all speak English. I mean, how different can it really be? And it's not really until you live somewhere and immerse yourself in the culture that you discover, as I did probably six months into being in New York, when I found myself at a baseball game with my husband and we both looked <laughs> at each other and went, dear God, we're in a foreign country. Seriously, <laughs> this is not sex in the city, is it? <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, but, but I think it, it was a very important chapter for me to experience a new culture. You know, many, many things happened in my 30s that informed you know, where I am now, I think it was a decade where I really found my voice. I, I'm, I'm an introvert by nature. <laughs> so it took a little while. Being put into situations that were unfamiliar 
as I was when I when I first moved to New York, it, it does really help you find your inner voice, really. Something else I, I think is interesting about this conversation is how openly you speak about your age. I think there are so many ageist conversations going on, whether that's in tech, innovation, advertising. I know I myself, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm 25 and I've actually not mentioned my age for the fear that you know my experience will be undermined or <laughs> something like that. You almost kind of do it from the other side where you call out your experience and you call out your age. Has that always been that straightforward for you or did you go through a time where age was suddenly this consideration, if you will? Oh, do you know? I mean, that is such a fascinating question. Age is always a factor, isn't it? I mean, I was very lucky in my 20s um, to find myself, I mean, probably over-promoted, really. <laughs> I found myself with quite big titles quite early on. Um, and I was very conscious that I would be considered too young to be taken seriously. Thankfully, I look quite old. So as long as nobody actually <laughs> looked me up, and of course, we weren't so reliant on all of the digital channels today that reveal our age, I could just about get away with it. So I spent a long time trying to cover up for my age. And then I don't think that I really got comfortable, probably until I until I hit 40, because then I sort of felt like I had a, a happy balance of youthful leadership. I mean, I was quite young in the roles that, that you know, I had, um, mm -hmm. but enough life experience to feel as though I could be open about my age and that it would be perceived to be additive to a conversation. It would add a bit of wisdom. So, mm -hmm. and now, I mean, I hit 50 last summer. I've definitely entered into a new phase of sort of mm -hmm. just really relaxing into it now. <laughs> I love that. No, and it's so true because it's almost like in some ways it can – act as a cure for imposter syndrome because you can you you can kind of lean back on the years of experience but at the same time the other side of that can be like well what have you done in all those years yeah. lucky for you <laughs> you have done so much and have had such an impressive uh, career. But before being CEO through all those years of experience, did you have a personal career strategy? Did you set out the goal of being CEO? The truth of the matter is no, I did not. I mean, I have been, I, I was the youngest in my family and I was the only girl. I have had a sort of competitive streak running through. I did a lot of sport when I was a kid. I've, I've always been quite competitive. So when I land on something, I work as hard as I possibly can to get as far forward as I possibly can. But the decisions that I have made have been far more passion based and intuitive. You know, I'm a big believer that given the amount of time that we spend on our working life, you know, you must do something that you love. And each of the choices I have made, I've been incredibly lucky and I've massively enjoyed the work that I've been doing. 
And so for me, I suppose that competitive bit of me still drives me to try and do the very best I can do in that role, in that industry, in that moment. And as you say, luckily, it's so far seems to be (laughs) seems to be paying off and long may that continue. Yes, cheers to that. Something else that I think is interesting that you say is do better, do different, do more, and now learning more about your competitive edge, that completely makes sense to me. But what does that really mean to you? And how do you think that doing better, different, and more fits in with enabling innovation? I I think it is sort of the definition in a way of innovation in the way that I think about it. So if you think about doing different... That's the kind of the big change innovation. So for my company, that's about, you know, helping our clients define new products and conquer new markets and build new services. It's about the work that we do advising, you know, clients when they are merging or spinning. So creating new companies and new cultures These are big innovations to me in a way in the work that we do. And then I think, you know, the doing better part of it also is about new and innovation and and small but quite possibly mighty change. So for us, that is about, you know, doing what we do, but doing it in a more sustainable manner or in a more purpose-driven manner, or developing, you know, different and better processes to do the things that we're doing, or building new structures or new teams. So that that's kind of how I look at things. I think, you know, the world is continually evolving and changing, never more quickly than it has in the last year. And I think a healthy, thriving business is always running the parallel strategies of, of, of doing different and doing better. And then once you land on something you like, just do more. Right. You mentioned the, you know, the world evolving and the technological capabilities that continue to rise. But unfortunately, we've seen some brands that are just jumping on to stay relevant, whether that's to say that they do AI or blockchain. And I think sometimes they lose a sense of who they are in the process. As the brand expert, how would you say a brand can innovate without losing its lens? I think it really comes back to to purpose when we're facing the conditions we're facing and there are no precedents for CEOs around the world to rely on, you can't do it, you know, you can't base decisions on what we did the last time we had a global pandemic because none of us have experienced it. Right. So companies really need to rely on a true north and a rubric that can inform the way that they make decisions And I think purpose has really been a guiding force for many companies throughout this. And I would argue that when you think about companies embracing technology, either internally to make things better or externally to connect better with consumers uh, or customers, it will be a more authentic experience and a better decision if it is guided by the company's purpose, because that's differentiated. 
if a company really is developing a meaningful purpose, it is specific to the company. So really strong brands are both relevant and differentiated. You know, you need both pieces. If all you're doing is rushing to embrace technology because everybody else is, and you don't layer that brand lens, that very specific thing that only your company can do, you'll find that that experience will become commoditized incredibly quickly, you know, and you you won't have achieved your goals. Absolutely. I also think that something that you brought up is this cultural aspect, right? We talk about internal culture, but you work across markets ranging from New York to London, but also to places like the Middle East. So how has innovation looked differently across those markets? You know, I mean, that's a brilliant question. Um, There are a lot of similarities, Of course, because I think, as I've said, you know, I think the nature of innovation is about, you know, doing things differently or doing things better. So I think the definition, I suppose, doesn't vary dramatically. Priorities change according to the market conditions you're in. So if you are in, you know, an evolved market, you know, like the US, like the UK, In order to embrace technology in new and interesting ways, you are building on the shoulders of the existing technology and the existing parameters that have been built over a period of time. If you are a growth market that missed out on some of those foundational tech steps, you can leapfrog. So we're seeing, you know, unbelievable tech innovations in in all sorts of of smaller markets around the world that aren't hampered by an infrastructure that needs reinventing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's quite fascinating where you're seeing some of the cutting edge stuff happen. We work a lot, um, as you say, in the Middle East and some of the innovations there have been breathtaking. Yeah, I mean, I have, I'm very biased, but I'm Israeli. It's a different part of the Middle East. But I think what's interesting is, is also some of those, those cultural factors that are at play. So for example, we have a huge startup scene and technology and software engineering is obviously one of the things we are most proud of, but we are also dealing with the role that religion plays in our structure and our society. So I I couldn't agree more. As a woman, though, you're likely traveling to those countries pre-COVID, you know, in your role as CEO. So how has your role changed and differed country by country? It, uh, that is a really fascinating question because I do think in, in recent years, I do feel a greater sense of responsibility to continue to promote gender equality. You know, I think that is part of my job now. I'm very proud of my company because we have a, you know, 50 50 split across the company at every level. So I do feel an obligation to kind of fly the women's flag wherever I go. I think as I've had more and more varied experiences in very different cultures, I have had to learn not to judge so quickly. 
it, it's very easy to apply your own values, your value system, the way you look at the world and judge what you find against that. Mm-hmm. And I've learned, I touched on it when I talked about New York, I learned by living in New York, you know, you have to be open to the conditions that, that got any particular culture to that point. You have to stop judging and you have to try and find a kind of middle ground from which to move forward. One of the biggest things I've learned is that you don't have to change your own values to collaborate with people that have different values. And I think that's quite important You know, I don't see my role as forcing my values on others, but I wouldn't put anybody in my company in a position where they would feel that they've compromised theirs. Yeah, completely. And especially because whether that's culture, innovation, or gender equality does look different in every country. And it comes with such, you know, years of history behind it. So I I really like what you're saying about the fact that it doesn't have to be this polarizing thing. There's collaboration is still on the table, even if the values do not necessarily align. Yeah. And I do think, you know, that's the key. The big thing that I feel is I won't compromise my values, but I don't have to impose them. We are an international company that has the privilege of working in many, many different markets that are unlike the markets in which we live. And we are internationally curious. And and I would say everywhere I've been in the world, I've learned some fascinating stuff and met amazing people. And I would you know, never want to find myself in a situation where the whole wide world looked exactly the same. Where's the fun in that? Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Before I do let you go, I'd love to ask you one last innovation question. And that is, where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? I mean, I knew you would ask that question, but it's still as I hear the words... Okay. I mean, it's obviously a two-part question. So where do I see myself in a month? Sadly, probably still in my attic room, (laughs) but hopefully finding new ways and new ideas to maintain inspiration and energy around my team. So we are thriving in lockdown, not just surviving. Yes. I think a year from now, I hope to be able to look back on 2021 and be very proud of our renewal and recovery as we come out the other side of the pandemic um, and proud of the innovations that we created through necessity of lockdown, but see them refined and optimized for a post-COVID world. And then probably on a personal level, 10 years from now, I will be embracing being an empty nester as my kids will have have left, hopefully in ways that don't drive them insane. Um, (laughs) I hope I'll be admiring achievements from the next generation of leaders at Landor and Fitch and hopefully uh, 
putting the experience that we talked about earlier, putting my experience to good use to help others grow. So I think that's what I'd like to think I'd be doing. I think from an industry's perspective, I mean, it's tough to define the industry that we're in because it is evolving so rapidly and and changing in so many ways. But similar to myself, I hope that, you know, we'll be thriving, not just surviving in a month and in a year. I hope we'll be you know, perfecting a lot of the exciting developments that we've seen in the last year will be helping our clients make purpose more real in new and interesting ways and helping more extraordinary brands and experiences come to life. So I think that's what I'd like to think we were doing in a year. Ten years is, is a tough question for our industry. I can speak to my company and say in 10 years' time, I hope that we've made a positive difference to our people who will be more diverse. I am determined for that to be the case, more inspired, more creative to our clients by creating more extraordinary stuff and hopefully to the world around us. I I hope to look back in 10 years time and say we led the way in sustainable design and design for good. Well, Jane, I'm so excited to see what the next one month, one year and 10 years bring for you. I'm sure you will be doing better, different and more. Thank you so much for joining us on the Win Win Podcast. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation and myself, Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womenininnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.